You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, thank you, uh, Christina and Sarah, for reading for us. Uh, if you're a praying person, definitely be praying for us this morning. I'm not sure if you noticed. I just watched Pastor Sam eat from a raw bag of flour. We need some prayer this morning. Uh, my name is Jimmy Young, and it's my great pleasure to open up Romans chapter 8. Uh, for us this morning. What an incredible chapter, my favourite chapter in the Bible. It is something full of encouragement for us. Last week I saw my family all together for the first time in over five months. Everyone in the same place at once. Five months of 15 kilometre radiuses of seeing each other over Zoom give way to that beautiful moment That beautiful moment when we could be together once again. Waiting is hard. In fact, if you've been in Melbourne, you know that waiting is hard because that's all we've been doing for the last two years. Waiting to come out of lockdown, waiting to see friends and family, waiting for things to go back to normal. And lots will have gone to the wayside. Goals and dreams, hopes have been put Aside over the last two years, waiting is hard. And Romans 8, in some ways, is a book about, or a chapter about waiting. We heard last week this great and glorious truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we have been adopted into God's family, that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. And yet so often it doesn't quite feel like that. It doesn't feel like we are free from condemnation. It doesn't feel like we've been adopted into God's family. It feels rather like we're still waiting for those things to be true. Do you ever feel like that? That you read these great and glorious truths and yet it still feels like you're waiting Well, Romans 8, verses 18 to 30 is a lot about waiting and the hope that we have in our waiting. So why don't we dive in? Verse 18 says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. There's an expectation that Paul, the writer of Romans, builds in that suffering is just a part of the Christian life. That there's something about it, that there will be this roadblocks, this suffering that we experience. But that what is about to take place in us, the glory that is to be revealed in us and to us, eclipses it entirely. And this is not an isolated theme in his writing. He says this, In 2 Corinthians 4, this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond measure. That Christians will suffer, but what is coming is so good, so immense, so incredible, that even the suffering we experience now will be slight and momentary. See, what Paul is doing is some eschatological balancing. Eschat- eschatology comes from two words, uh, logia or logia, 
which means study, and eschatos, which means the last, the study of the last times. It's what Christians expect to happen in the last times when Jesus returns. Are we living in light of the fact that Jesus will Return Now, you might hear eschatology and immediately start to think of revelation and how weird and confusing and strange that is and how much easier it is just to read about the Gospels and what Jesus does. And Don't do that. Stay with me just for a little bit because it's so important. In fact, basically everything after the Gospel stops making sense if we don't remember that Jesus is going to return. The evangelism in Acts makes no sense. The writing of Paul in Romans makes no sense. So much of the Bible makes no sense if we don't have in our minds that Jesus will return. And particularly when he starts talking about what is to come, the glory that is to come, he's doing this balancing act. You see, what so many of us have or what many people, we, we veer to two extreme sides. We either have an under-realized eschatology. That is, we go, well, everything's just going to happen uh, at some point. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to think about it. The world's going to the toilet. All I need to do is just sort of sit down, chill out, go to church, and just wait. I'm not going to do much. I'm, I'm not going to change much. I don't even really need to care about the world. I'm just going to wait until Jesus returns. And yet there are other church contexts where there's an over-realized eschatology, where people, you know, you know the prayer that we pray almost every week, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. That, they feel like that's a reality, that the kingdom that has come is on earth as in heaven, that there's no separation They've viewed the line between what God is doing now and what God will do as an infinitesimally small. But Paul balances those two views, what theologians call the now but not yet. We experience in part, we look forward to the full. We experience it now, but there is something coming that is even greater. It's the difference between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. You see, in 1944, when the Allied forces won the Battle of Normandy, historians look back at that and go, that was the moment that Germany lost. That was the moment the war was over, and yet it took almost 12 more months until the last German forces surrendered. The war was won, but the war was not over. The war was over in part. It took time for that to be manifested as fact. The Christian believer in this world knows that Jesus Christ has won the victory. He has defeated the powers of evil, the forces of this world, and yet we look forward to the fullness of it, the glory that is about to be revealed in us and just like in World War II that in the distance between D-Day and V-Day there would have been skirmishes, battles, wars we too experience skirmishes we too experience battles and so what do we do as we wait and hope for glory 
Well, Paul immediately goes into creation. He starts talking about creation. In fact, he says this, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For for creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. It says that creation was subjected to futility. It means that the purpose it was created for is not able to be lived out. Creation was designed to reveal the glory of God. That's its intent. That's its purpose, to show off God's creativity, His immense beauty that He has created. The heavens declare the glory of God, and yet ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, the earth has had a curse laid upon it. Yes, it is beautiful. Yes, it still see, we still see some of the beauty of God. And yet nature is groaning in labor pains. We see this in natural disasters all around us. Even in Melbourne, the last couple of weeks, we've had earthquakes. We've had incredible winds, hurricanes almost. My bin went 100 meters away from my house. Not all, all is not as it's meant to be. We see around the world flooding, fires. And we ourselves have contributed to that. We've meddled in the world and made it worse in many cases. Creation has been subjected to futility. The purpose for which it was created is not yet being fulfilled. Yet what does it say? It waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. In verse 19, the Phillips Bible says that creation waits on its tippy toes for the revealing of the children of God. Because in some way God has so made creation and humanity entwined that just as when humanity fell, the earth was placed with a curse, that when humanity, when men and women, the children of God, are to be revealed, creation waits with hope. Creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay. Describes creation right now as groaning in labor pains. Labor is incredibly difficult and many of us who have had kids or or have kids would have that picture immediately after the labor has taken place with the, the baby on our wives. This beautiful picture of relief and joy and exhaustion. You know what no one has a picture of? No one has a picture of the labor. No one's picking out a picture of the labor from their their pocket or their wallet and saying, would you like to see a picture of my wife's labor? Isn't agony incredible? At least no one that survived to tell the tale. It's because we labor in hope. We labor in anticipation of of what's to come. Just as women labor in hope of a baby that is to come, creation labors in hope that is to be set free and we too groan 
It says in verses 22 to 25, going on, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We groan for adoption. And this is where the balancing act comes in. Because it says we wait for adoption. But earlier in chapter 8, it actually says we have been adopted into God's family. How can we be adopted and yet wait for adoption? It's because we experience in part our adoption. We experience in part being part of God's family right now. And we will experience the fullness of adoption in time. When the glory is revealed. We groan for the redemption of our bodies, for the, ado- for the adoption, the fullness of that. One of my quotes that's just stuck in my head over a long period of time is this by John MacArthur. He says, When people ask me about what appeals to me about heaven, it isn't the streets of transparent gold or the gates made of pearls. It's the absence of sin. I'm tired sin. I don't know about you, but I feel that in my bones. That there's this time right now where we groan for the redemption of our bodies, the fullness of what we are to experience. I I know personally, I, I wait for that. I eagerly long for that. My body is not the way it was designed to be. It's not what it will be. I've I've got many chronic illnesses over a long period of time. I cannot remember a time when I was well. So I eagerly wait for the redemption of my body and some days it feels like groaning. I wait for that day when we will be free of sin. When my sin won't harm others. When others' sin won't harm me anymore. We will be free. So what do we do in the middle of this? What do we do in the middle of the suffering whilst creation groans, whilst we groan, whilst we live in part and wait for the full? Well, God gives us some incredible, glorious promises to hold on to. Just get get a load of this. This is one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Did you catch that? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The third person of the Trinity helps us in our weakness. When we are weak, the Spirit is interceding for us. When we are weak, the Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter is doing its best work, His best work. When we are weak... The Spirit is doing incredible things. 
It intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. The Spirit is praying in line with God's will. That is a mind-blowing sentiment. That it's not in our strength, not when we feel on top of the world, but in our weakness, the Spirit is interceding and praying on our behalf. You know, uh, sometimes I go down to Frankston Beach and pray and sort of spend some time in silence and solitude. And there was a week where I felt overwhelmed, where uh, there was just so many things going on. And I I get down and and normally I've got a whole list of things to pray for and they just immediately come to mind. And I I went down this week, not this week, but uh, but that week. I didn't know what to pray. I don't even know where to start. How do I even order all the things that are going on right now? I just sat down and said... Help me. Spirit, help me. Jesus, help me. Father, help me. Now there was a lot going on that week that I didn't pray for. But I can rest knowing that the Spirit interceded on my behalf and spoke words to the Father who knows both our heart and the the mind of the Spirit. It's why Thomas Schreiner can say these beautiful words. Believers should take tremendous encouragement that the will of God is being fulfilled in their lives, despite their weakness and inability to know what to pray for. God's will is not being frustrated because of the weakness of believers. It is being fulfilled because the Spirit is interceding for us and invariably receiving affirmative answers to his pleas. No wonder all things are working out for our good. The Spirit is effectively praying for us so that the will of God will be accomplished in our lives. Take heart. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And now we come to what may be the most famous verse in Romans. One of the most famous sections. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's this beautiful picture that God presents of his work in our lives. And Romans 8.28 might be the crux of that, the height, the one that we put on our coffee mugs We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who who are called according to his purpose. And the question very quickly becomes, what is the good that God is bringing about in our lives? Because we we could bring to mind any number of things that could be the good. The good is getting out of lockdown. The good is lots of good jobs. The good is good health. The good is a, a wonderful family. The good is this beautiful friendship network that I have. The good is, I don't know, a Lamborghini. I don't I don't know. But I don't think that's what God has in mind. It's not what I think is necessarily good for me. In fact, 
I think it's revealed what's good for us in verse 29. Those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What good does God bring about in our lives through all that we experience? It's the being conformed to Jesus. It's that our lives will start to take the shape of Jesus. That when people see us, they, say the, they see the shape of Jesus in our lives. And the beautiful thing is that suffering cannot take that from you. Nothing can take that from you. That plan can't be thwarted. All things work together for the good of those who love God because all things are making you more like Jesus in the will of God. You are being shaped, contoured to be more like Jesus through all that you experience. Everything that you go through is shaping you to be more like Jesus. And God is doing it sovereignly. His sovereignty, his immensity, his power is securing that beautiful promise. And that that last verse, we'll, we'll get there in a second, that golden chain that God starts in verse 29 foreknew, called, predestined, justified, glorified. That's how he's accomplishing that in your life. Now we might see the word foreknew and start to get a little nervous, a little confused. What does it mean that God foreknew? Does it mean that he looked down the the corridors of time and saw those who would choose him and therefore he chose them? Well, I'm not sure that's what's going on. I think God foreknows the people that he chooses to set his love upon. So in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, he says about Abraham, No, I have chosen him. In Amos, when God is talking about Israel, he says, You only have I known of all the families on earth. There are other families, but God has chosen chosen. To pour out his love specifically on some people. Or in the New Testament we might say we love because God first loved us. God chose some to pour out his love, his affection upon. It says again in in 29, those he foreknew he predestined. It's another big word, a loaded word. What does that mean? I think Ephesians gives the shape of that for us. Ephesians 1, chapter 11 says, In Christ we have attained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will. God is in control. God is able. God is working out all things according to his counsel and will to bring this about. It's the God who knows us and has poured out his affection upon us. Is the God who organizes all things according to his will and counsel. Is the same God who calls us into his family, woos us to be part of his kingdom. Is the same God who justifies us. The same God who makes us right with him through the death of Jesus Christ who died in our place so that we might be with God forever, forever is the same 
God who glorifies us is the same God who secures our eternal bodies, the redemption of our bodies, the full adoption, the glorification that we will experience is all secured. There is no road bump that will knock the Christian off. There is nothing that will get in the way of God's plan for God walks all things for good for those who love God. John Piper says it like this. The point of the golden chain, the point of the fact that God foreknows, that he predestines, that he calls, that he justifies, that he glorifies, is this, that no link breaks. Nobody falls out. Everyone foreknown becomes a predestined one. Every predestined one becomes a called one. Every called one becomes a justified one. Every justified one becomes a glorified one. Few things could be more glorious. Assurance, confidence, stability, courage. God is able to see us through to that glorious day when the glory that is about to be revealed in us and to us will eclipse this present suffering, this present skirmish, these present battles will be left behind. And while we wait, while we do the difficult task of waiting with hope, we have the Spirit who helps us and a God who is able to see things through to their end. Why don't we pray? God, we thank you so much for Romans chapter 8, this glorious encouragement that though we experience suffering now, though we experience groaning now, that though creation groans in anticipation of what is about to happen, we know that you are able to see through to the end what you purposed. Lord, we confess we are weak. Spirit, help us. Change us and shape us to be more like your son, Jesus. Help us to see how all things work together for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. May we trust you. May we rest securely in your sovereignty. May we trust in your promises, Lord, and live lives that look like Jesus because you have worked all things to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.